are almost uh, through with the Why I'm Not series. We've got just a couple more things we're going to cover, but basically this may be it today. We'll see what else unfolds. I've, I've got one more possible lesson that we want to look at on why I'm not a Jew. But I'd like to pick back up. This is part two of why I'm not a Jew. And so I've got to do a little bit to catch up those of you who were not here for part one. But it's going to be really fast. So fasten your seatbelt, put up your tray tables because we're going to take off and it's going to go pretty quick here. You might think that's an obvious question. Why are you not a Jew? Well, you just weren't born Jewish. But it's not so obvious. And so I've added to this why I'm not a Jew or am I? Because uh, to some extent, maybe things are a little different than you might suspect. Let me tell you why. It all boils down to how you define what a Jew is. Definitions are extremely important. Uh, Bob and I were trying a case uh, a number of years back that was dealing with um, a, a, a drug and whether or not this drug caused heart attacks. And, and the company, our contention was, we think everybody had finally figured out it caused heart attacks. So that part of the case was easy to prove. Then the case became, did the company warn about the possible bad heart problems. My view of, of this world, just from a <clears throat> lawyer slash politician slash, uh, I'm not a politician, but I mean in terms of what politicians should do. Heaven forbid I be a politician. That might be the only thing worse than being a lawyer. Um, I'm not sure that it is, but it might be, okay? But my view of the world is, is you can sell your drugs, just tell me what the bad part is so I can decide with my doctor whether or not to take it. Now, I'm not trying to keep a drug off the market. I just want to know the truth. So the question became, is the company warning properly about the possible heart problems? And I would contend that they did not. But they would try to tell the jury, oh, it's in the label. It's in that thing that, that comes with the drug. And maybe in the label it references heart attacks. But there's a lawyer word game going on with the jury there. And Bob and I were scratching our heads at how to prove it. Because a drug label has got categories or sections. They've got buckets, if you will, that they talk about. And the most important bucket in this regard is a section that's called warnings. And it's where the drug company is required to list certain warnings about things that can happen to people if they take the drug. And that's the warnings bucket. Then there's another bucket of things that are called precautions. And the precautions part of your drug label, and you're all going to go home and pull your drug labels out, and you're going to read them, aren't you? Okay? The precautions section deals with things where... <clears throat> You think, uh, the, the company and the FDA think, okay, this might be something safety-oriented that you need to be aware of. We're not, we're, it doesn't rise to the level of a warning, so we don't list it first and put it on warnings, but it's, it's serious and it's important and, and the, it might be linked to the drug. And then there's this third bucket called adverse events. And the regulations require the drug companies to put in that third bucket anything that happened to anyone who was ever taking the drug during one of the trials. 
whether it was related to the drug or not. Now, this drug was what we would call a super aspirin. For those of you who have medical or chemical training, it was a cyclooxygenase inhibitor. Specifically, it inhibited the cyclooxygenase 2. It was a COX-2 inhibitor. Think of it like um, a super ad or an Advil, actually. Just an Advil you don't have to take as many pills on. But it's the same basic thing as an Advil or as a naproxen, which is a leave. <clears throat> and um, uh, to some extent, even aspirin itself, though aspirin's not as much a COX-2 inhibitor. But uh, at any rate, so what you've got here is something that's going to help you with your aches and pains. It's an arthritis drug, if you will. And we would argue, <clears throat> or argued, that the company should have warned that it might also cause heart attacks. Where the warning was that the company was saying they put out there was not in the warnings section. It wasn't in the precautions section. It's over here in this third bucket of just side effects that don't even remotely have to be related to taking the drug. And if you ever look at the side effects, you'd never take a drug. So in this arthritis drug, so how are we going to explain this? How are we going to keep these definitions straight with the jury was our challenge. So we went to Walmart and we bought three buckets. And on one bucket, we put the word warning. On another bucket, we put the word precaution. And on another bucket, we put the word side effects. And then I was able to take the witnesses and say, you say there's a warning you, that you warned the public about heart attacks? I'm looking in the warning bucket. Nothing in there, is there? Well, that's true. I'm looking in the side effects. You didn't even put it in there, did you? No. The only reference in the label is in this, I mean, uh, precautions, is in this side effects bucket. That's the only reference in this well, yeah. So let's show the jury some of the other things in the side effects button. I pulled out a can of off bug spray because insect bites is in that section. I pulled out some preparation H because someone had hemorrhoids when they took the medicine. I pulled out an ACE bandage because someone broke their arm when they had the medicine. None of those are related to the drug itself. And the jury then understood and was able to say, no, don't tell us you warned about heart attacks when you put it in the wrong bucket. Definitions matter. So as lawyers, we're real tuned into this. So when I talk about, am I Jewish? I've got to say, well, what does it mean to be a Jew? Because that word itself has lots of different meanings. A Jew, it might mean a citizen of Israel. And no, I'm not a citizen of Israel. I'm definitely not Jewish. A Jew might mean someone who's culturally a Jew. Well, I don't keep kosher. I don't really keep cultural Jewish habits. I don't, I don't uh, uh, celebrate uh, the Jewish New Year, Rosh Hashanah. I don't uh, 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 keep the high holy days. I, I'm not really a cultural Jew. And so I've got to say no to those. Well, what about uh, a, a genetic Jew? We talked at some added length about this last week. 
of what it means to be genetically of the offspring of, of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I'm not genetically Jewish to the best of my knowledge. But there's a whole other category of, of Jews. And these are people who are religious Jews. They might proselytize and become a Jew and convert into Judaism. Or they might be Jews that, that will call themselves Jews because they, they uh, uh, keep and hold fast to the religion of Judaism. And that's something that over the centuries has meant some different things in some different times. If we look in America today, and I put this graph up last week, if we look at how many Jewish subdivisions there are, 29% are conservative Jews, and uh, uh, 12% are Orthodox. And of those Orthodox, they divide up into different levels of Orthodoxy, if you will. The conservatives, there's a spectrum of people there. Reform Jews, there's a spectrum of people there. And then there are others, which include uh, Messianic Jews uh, 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 and a number of other different types of Jews, and that's about 18% here in America. If you go back 2,000 years, before the destruction of the Second Temple, in first century Judaism, there were at least four different sects of Judaism that we know of. There were the Pharisees, which were the, the strictly observant Jews. They tried to observe all of the Tanakh, which is the Jewish scriptures. So the Jewish scriptures, in that sense, the Tanakh, combine of three different types of scripture. And they all form part of that word Tanakh. So you have the Ta part, which is the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, or, or the books of Moses, or the Pentateuch, called by lots of names, but the Jewish book of law, the Torah, and that's those first five books, that's the T part of Tanakh. The N part comes from the word Navi, which the, the Navim are the, the prophets in Hebrew. And so that's the book or the collection of scrolls, books of prophets. And then the Cha part at the end are the Katuvim, are the other writings. Because Hebrew scriptures divided up into those three sections. And the Pharisees embraced those scriptures and were very, very rigorous with those scriptures, studied them and tried to follow them very carefully. The Sadducees were more of the elite they were, they were the, the, the political social scene. They were the ones that interfaced with the Romans. They didn't follow all of the Jewish scriptures. They only followed the Torah, the Torah. And so they were very different than the Pharisees. By the way, that's probably one of the reasons the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection because it's not talked about as much in the Torah as it is in the rest of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the Pharisees believed in a resurrection from the dead. Uh, then there were the Essenes, very strict community, a rigorous community that isolated itself from the rest of Judaism because they thought the rest was corrupt. This is the Dead Sea Scroll community, most likely, that produced the Dead Sea Scrolls. There was a fourth group that happened, and this group originated around in the, the 40s, the 30s to 40s A.D., and this group were called affectionately the Nazarenes. 
These Nazarenes, at this point in history, that was just the phrase that was used for the group of Jews that believed Jesus of Nazareth was, in fact, Messiah. And that was just viewed as one of the groups of Judaism. Until probably about 110, 120 A.D. or C.E., if we're speaking in in other terminology. After the destruction of the temple and the second Roman rebellion, the Christians were, in a sense, anathema from Judaism. And the Christians, at this point in time, became more infused with Greek culture and Greek converts, and it grew distance from Judaism. And if you look at the history between the two, there have been some atrocious, atrocious things committed in the name of religion. Even Christians, so-called, committing grievances and atrocities against Jews. And stuff that would turn your stomach. Those in my book aren't Christians. Those are people who seem to forget Jesus was a Jew. So were the apostles. So was the early church. And it was recognized Christianity as a, a sect or a group within Judaism in the, in the very beginning. And, and we see that in the New Testament scriptures because that's the time period the New Testament was written. The New Testament was written at a time by Jews, by and large, not Luke Acts maybe, but by Jews at a time when Judaism was still, or Christianity was still considered a part of Judaism. So what is a religious Jew? It depends on when you're looking and how you're looking and where you're looking. So how do I make a decision about whether or not I'm Jewish? I went to Maimonides, the great eagle, the marvelous Jewish scholar, a medieval scholar who is accredited from the 12th century with basically encapsulating religious Judaism, at least within the rabbinic tradition, which was the mainstream tradition within Judaism. And still today he studied and embraced as a great rabbi and a great teacher. And so, so many people, I don't think it hurts that his first name's Moses. So, so many people still embrace Moses Maimonides for what he had to say and how he taught. And, and, and if you're going to try and define what Judaism is from a religious perspective, you can't go wrong by looking at the teachings and the 13 principles of faith that Maimonides put out there. All Jewish People do not believe them. All of them don't embrace them. There's a full wealth and spectrum of Judaism. But this is mainstream. So I look at those, and we looked at the first four last week. I won't look in detail at them, but I want to throw them out there so that you've got all 13 in one lesson. Principle one, the first belief is belief in a creator, a being who is himself complete in existence and who caused all that exists. That is a Christian teaching. It's a teaching we read about from Paul. Rabbi Paul said it over and over and over. It's clearly apparent in the teachings of Paul. It's apparent in the Gospel of John. It's apparent in in the teachings of Jesus. Principle number two, two. The second principle centers on the unity of God, that God is one. 
Now, at first blush, people may say, well, Christians disagree with that. Oh, no, they do not. The idea that there are three gods has been labeled as heresy for the church for well over 1,500 years and would have been viewed heretical by Paul and all of the early Christians. You find within Scripture over and over and over, Jesus says that we're to serve and love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. That's part of the Shema. He called the Shema the greatest commandment. And the Shema starts out, Shema Yisrael, Adonai, God, Eloheinu, our, our God, Adonai, God, Echad, is one. Adonai, Eloheinu, Adonai, Echad, that's fundamental. And Jesus pointed it out as the greatest commandment. That God is one. Where Christianity has a difference, it's a fuller understanding, we would say as Christians, of who God is. That this God is not just a human being on a supersized scale. This God is, is not, he, he is, he is an entirely different entity and being than we have ever seen or conceived of who has revealed himself to us lest we would not understand him and he has to reveal himself to us in human terminology, in human language, in human experience so that we've got some way to grasp what it is, what he is. But he is not human. And so somehow this one God is also Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they are distinct, and yet they are one. And yes, that's a difficult concept to wrap our brain around, but if it were anything simple, I would be highly cynical about it. That the being who created all of this, who knows all of our thoughts, and not just ours, but the other 8 billion people on this planet, and knows how it's all going to work together so that he can talk about what will happen tomorrow today. So that for him, a thousand years from now is the same as history. A being like that, for me to ever think, oh, well, I understand him. He's just this. Heaven forbid. So this is one that Christianity agrees with. Principle number three. God is spirit, not flesh. He's not subject to things that affect the bodies. He doesn't get tired. He doesn't have to move. When the Bible speaks of God in physical terms, walking, standing, etc., the face of God, the hand of God, the heart of God, it's a metaphor. It's using the language of people. Amen. I agree wholeheartedly. That's the teaching of the New Testament. When Paul in Philippians 2 said to have the same attitude... The same thinking patterns as Jesus. He wants the church to be humble. He wants the church to serve others. He wants the church to care about each other more than we care about ourselves. So the way he tells the church to do that is to have the same attitude that Jesus had. And then when he expresses what he means by that, he says, Jesus, who existed, past tense, in the form of God but did not think it was important to stay in that status. 
He did not regard Paul's words, equality with God, something he had to hold on to. But he emptied himself and took the form of a human. And being made in the likeness of man, then humbled himself to other people. So you Christians have the same attitude of Jesus Messiah. Who exists in the form of God, but empties himself and takes on human form. God is not flesh. God is spirit. Jesus said the same thing in John 4.24 to the woman at the well. That's a very Christian understanding of God. That's why it's hard for us to say God is one, yet in some way God is three. But he is only one. God is a spiritual being, and we don't know what those beings are. Because we're not. We are beings of spirit, flesh, and blood. All tied in together. We are created, not creator. So, principle number four. God is primordial. Meaning, he is absolute and no one or nothing existed before him. I can remember saying to mom, you know, where did I come from? And mom tells me, well, where did you come from? And mom tells me, well, where did Nenal come from? Well, where did grandmother Davis come from? And we can work it all the way back to Adam because we've kept good ties of our genealogy. We have to skip a few thousand generations, but... Where did he come from, God made? Well, where did God come from? He's always been. Well, how can that be? You can't understand that because you're created. So you don't have the experience, the language, the thoughts to understand what it means. But we know, even without understanding, he's always existed. That's why he's God. Don't ever think, and mom told me this, dad told me this, Catherine, my uh, older sister, I got to quit calling her older because since she shuts down and quits listening to the lesson. Um, Catherine, my mentor sister, how's that? Okay. My teaching sister, she says, just cut me out of the lesson. Okay, um, those who came before me and my family... Taught me, don't ever think you've got it all figured out. There's always more to learn. Don't think, oh, well, I don't understand how God could always exist, so there must be no God. No, that's called arrogance in your thinking. I got to tell you, I don't understand quantum physics very well, but that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as quantum physics. I've tried, I've tried really, really hard to learn a couple of languages. And I haven't learned them, but that doesn't mean they don't exist. So, this is a point I agree with. Now, here are the new ones. We've got 25 minutes. Let's go through these new ones. Some I'll spend more time on than others. But you know how to access the written lesson, and they're all written up in there. Principle number five. God alone is worthy of worship and praise. One must not worship any lesser beings. We don't worship angels. We don't worship stars. We don't worship anything that's been made. We worship the creator, not the created. Principle number five of Judaism from Maimonides. I agree 100%. That's the biblical teaching for the Christians in the New Testament as well. Jesus made it real clear. You worship only God. 
Now, when the people worshipped Jesus, it was only appropriate in that Jesus is God. So if you look at some of these passages for a moment, look at Luke 4, verse 8, which is a New Testament writing, one of the Gospels, Luke chapter 4, verse 8. This is the temptation of Jesus. This is where Jesus has been taken up by Satan. And, 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 and it's at the start. Hold on. You don't get to see it yet. Here. Won't make you look at my hand. This is at the start of Jesus's public ministry. So Jesus, he's not been declared Messiah yet. He's going out and he's about to commence that last three years of his life where he is trying to do what he's been called to do by God as Messiah, what he came to earth to do. That's the Christian idea. And the Christian idea starts this out with Jesus going into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. Now, the goal of Jesus is to see that God's kingdom which God had prophesied and said would come through the king, through the seed of David and would be an everlasting kingdom. Jesus's goal is to see the kingdom of God come to fruition. In the midst of a world that's ruled by the evil one, by Satan. Ever since the fall of Adam and Eve, Satan's had control of this world. So within that framework, Jesus goes out full of the Holy Spirit. He goes from his baptism, is led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days. Now that's not an accidental 40 days. The Jews were in the wilderness for 40 days. Uh, the Israelites, not Jews. Although the Jews, I guess the people of Judah were part of that. But more than that, the Israelites were in the wilderness for 40 days. During that 40 days, he's tempted by the devil. And the devil gives him these temptations. And look at verse 5. <clears throat> the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And said, I will give you all the authority, all their glory, because it's mine right now. And I can give it to whomever I want. You worship me, Jesus. And I'll give you all the kingdoms of this world. You think you came for the kingdom of God. Let me give it to you. I'll give you back all of this world that is now mine because of the sin of humanity. I'll give you all the authority. I'll give you every person. I'll give you all of it. You can have it all right here, right now. All you got to do is worship me. Say that I'm worthy. Give credence to who I am. Give honor to me. And you get everything that you came here to get. I'll deliver it to you. You don't have to fight me to get it. I will give it to you. That's the temptation. Jesus' response. Jesus answered and said, it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. That's a very Christian principle. Jesus didn't take the shortcut. Which would have been a fake shortcut. He'd have inherited a world of dying people. Because but for the sacrifice of Jesus, we have no eternity. 
He wanted the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Satan. And so he did. I agree with this principle. Principle number six, that there is prophecy. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is very Christian. Romans 3, 2, Paul, the rabbi, Christian apostle, says, what's an advantage to being a Jew? Tons. Number one, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Christians don't throw away the Old Testament. Paul wrote Timothy at the end of his life. Timothy is one of his protégés. And Paul's looking to put the mantle of leadership on Timothy's shoulders. And what does Paul tell Timothy? He says, all scripture is caused or comes from or inspired by God. Paul's talking about the Old Testament there. The New Testament hadn't been put together yet. All of it. All of it. Not just the Torah. Not the Torah and the prophets. But all of it. The Tanakh. The Torah, the prophets, and the other writings. All of it's inspired by God and profitable for teaching and training that we would be fully equipped for every good work. And that's the mantle that Paul gives to his protege before Paul dies so that he'll understand it. In Joel, the Old Testament prophet Joel, the Hebrew prophet Joel, Joel 2.28 says there's going to come a day where God will pour out His Spirit again and young men will see visions and old men will dream dreams and, and, and the Word of the Lord will come out in a fresh and new way. And that's what Christians understand happened on the day of Pentecost, which is the day when the Holy Spirit came down And everybody started understanding things they had not understood before. And the church begins and 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem are baptized into the church. One day. As Peter prophetically and the Holy Spirit comes down as Jesus had also said. Prophecy, absolutely. We believe in that. Principle number seven. The prophecy of Moses, our teacher, namely, that we must believe he's the father of all prophets who preceded or succeeded him. All prophets are of lesser status. Christians would agree with that. But there is another layer to it that we need in in fairness to, to add as a Christian. You see, in Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19, Moses, the great prophet... 18, 15 through 19. Moses, the great prophet, even spoke of who would be coming after him. He says, The Lord, go back to verse 17, said to me, this is all capitals because it's Hashem, it's the name, it's the name of God he's referencing. The name of God said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them. A prophet like you, Moses, from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he will speak them to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he will speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Moses prophesied that there would be another great prophet like Moses. Who would speak words that were words from God that would be required listening, if you will. And that, I might add, 
is what happens with Jesus. So if you look for passages like John 1, 17, the Gospel of John, the writer of John says that the law came through Moses. John 1, there we go. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Uh, John bore witness about him. From his fullness, we've all received grace upon the grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is a counterpart, if you will. Moses brings the law. Moses brings the instructions from God. Moses brings our teaching that we need to understand the ways of the Lord. Teachings, I might add, that no human being will ever perfectly follow. Jesus comes and brings grace. He brings forgiveness. He brings mercy. But he doesn't bring it out of some namby-pamby, God-changes-his-mind type stuff. He brings it hand-in-hand with truth. And truth says, as we'll see in a minute, that sin must be judged. And a penalty must be paid for the sin. And when Jesus brings grace, he brings it with truth. Because what Moses taught, Jesus solves. Moses set out the problem. Jesus brings the solution. But, if we go back to the PowerPoint, I agree with Maimonides. Because Jesus is no ordinary prophet. Jesus is God. And Maimonides is making the point that among men, there are no other men on Moses' level where God spoke to them and, and communicated so directly to them. But Jesus is not simply another man. Jesus said, when you see me, you see the Father. Jesus said, the things that I do are only the Father doing them through me. So, I agree. Principle number eight. Torah is from heaven. We must believe the Torah we currently have. And that we received it through Moses, our teacher. And that it's entirely from God. Christians agree 100%. Absolute, full agreement. And the passages are there. You can look at them. I don't want to spend time because I'm running out. Principle number nine. The authenticity of the Torah, namely, that the Torah of Moses was transcribed from the Creator, may he be blessed, and not from anyone else. That's mainstream Christian teaching as well. That same Romans passage where Paul calls the Torah the oracles of God. This was God's voice. This is so important to Christianity because one of the fundamental things about Christianity is that Jesus is predicted by the Torah and the Old Testament scriptures. We know Jesus is who he is because we can put him to the test of who Messiah should be. That only works if the test is correctly given. Principle number 10. That God Most High knows the deeds of human beings and does not turn His attention from them. Okay, this is not just something I agree with. This is the core of my understanding of Christianity. I agree with this not a hundred percent. 
A thousand percent. Ten thousand percent. God knows all of our deeds. He pays attention to them. It's because of that that we're in a lot of trouble. That's why I need a Savior. I can't even go into worship where we're singing incredible songs to the Lord and keep my attention solely on Him without thinking about what's going on today or without thinking about what's going on tomorrow or what happened yesterday or how great my wife is. She's sitting next to me. I think that a lot during church. I, mean, I, I, can't, I can't keep my focus always. That in itself does not slip the attention of the Almighty One. He knows every one of our thoughts. He knows our deeds. Look at principle 11. God Most High gives reward to the one who fulfills the commandments of the Torah and punishes those who transgress His prohibitions. That is the truth. But, there's more to this story. I put up a ton of passages. I don't have time to put them all on the screen, but let me show you what Rabbi Paul said. Galatians 6, 7. He says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that also shall he reap. Romans 2, 6 through 8. He says, These are the principles of God's judgment. To those who do right, look, I, I, I got to show you this one. Romans 2, 6 through 8, look real carefully at Maimonides. It looks like he's almost quoting the, apostle, uh, the, the rabbi Paul. I mean, that's how dead on it is. Look closely, Maimonides. God Most High gives a reward to the one who fulfills the commandments, punishes those who transgress. And then here's Paul. They show the work of the laws written on their hearts. While their conscience bears witness, their conflicting thoughts accuse or excuse them. On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men. I mean, look, this, this is it. Look, look up at verse 8, uh, 6. That God, here it is, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. Those who are self-seeking and don't obey the truth, but unrighteousness, wrath and fury. And that's, that's the Christian understanding of who God is. And then you add Isaiah 64, 6, where Isaiah, the prophet, says, even the best human deed is like a filthy rag before God, because God is so pure. Psalm 14, 2 and 3 says, there's not anyone really doing a good deed, not even one. And Paul quotes that in Romans 3. I, the whole point of the Christian message is in that Galatians 2, 21 passage. The whole point of it is, Jesus had to die to pay the price for our sins. Otherwise, we're stuck with principle 11. Because all of the transgressions will be punished. So you can take the punishment, or Jesus can. 
And Paul says it in Galatians 2.21 where he says, look, if you could get righteous by yourself, by what you're doing, then there's no reason for Jesus to have died. He died in vain. Why does he need to take your sins if you can do it yourself? The point is we can't. And so we get to principle number 12, the Messiah. And look at it in a little more fullness. Messianic days, namely, this is quoting Maimonides, to believe and trust that the Messiah will come soon. One must believe that he will have superior rank and honor to any other king that ever ruled. One should exalt and love and pray for him according to what all the prophets from Moses to Malachi prophesied. This principle entails belief that every king of Israel, including the Messiah, must be from the house of David and the line of Solomon. Or so it says in the Old Testament. So I just decided to do a little cursory look. Jewish messianic prophecies, each of these are prophecies that were messianic or viewed to be of the Messiah at the time of Jesus. This isn't me going back and trying to find something that fits in the puzzle. Jewish writings show all of these were interpreted variously by different peoples to be messianic promises. So here we have the Messiah would be a descendant of David. That's in the Old Testament. Maimonides said the same thing. The gospel starts out in Matthew 1.1, the first verse of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. And the genealogy is given all the way back to King David. If you're waiting for a Messiah today, it's going to be really tough to keep that genealogy back to David and show it and prove it with the destruction of the temple and those records after Jesus. But at the time of Jesus, it wasn't hard. They kept this. So lineage? Yep. Jewish messianic prophecy. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. Micah 5, 2 says, But for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you will come forth one who will rule the nations. Now, Bethlehem's not a city of Houston. Bethlehem at the time isn't a town. It's hardly a village. It's a shanty. There's not much there. But we do know that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, In the days of Herod the king, wise men came from the east saying, where's the king? Where's the guy who's born to be king of the Jews? Herod calls together all the wise people. Herod says, hey, where's the Bible say that uh, Jesus is going to be born or the the Messiah is going to be born? They said, Bethlehem, and they quote that Micah passage. And Jesus is born there. His birthplace lines up. What do we have next? The Messiah would be born of a virgin. Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, you say, "Ah, wait a minute. That Hebrew word virgin just means an unmarried girl. Which typically should mean a virgin, but it doesn't have to mean. And that's true. But 200 years before the birth of Jesus, the Jewish rabbis themselves translated the Old Testament book of Isaiah into Greek. And they chose the Greek word parthenos, which is the Greek word for a virgin. Because they clearly were thinking that the Messiah would be born of a virgin, which of course Jesus was. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel. That is the reason Jesus was born of a virgin, to fulfill what the prophet had said. The virgin birth is there. What else? The Messiah would perform signs of healing. 
That's in Isaiah 35, 5 and 6. And when John the Baptist wondered, is Jesus the Messiah? Jesus sent the people back with this answer for John. You go tell John the Baptist what you see. Blind receive their sight. The lame walk. Lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have good news preached to them. Jesus is saying, I've met that messianic prediction of the ministry and work of the Messiah. What else do we have? The Messiah would be akin to the Passover lamb. A male, unblemished, sacrificed with his blood figuratively and physically covering over the people in the sense of the doorpost. How people go in and come out in their life. They couldn't come in and go out. They couldn't leave where they were and go to the promised land without passing under the blood of the Lamb. And that's relevant in the life of Christ. Who is John the Baptist says, he sees Jesus and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Rabbi Paul talked about how important that Christ, our Passover Lamb, has been sacrificed. Christians understand the Old Testament image is still true. It's through the blood of the unblemished male lamb, Jesus Christ. You can't leave from where you are and go to the promised land without passing through the blood of Jesus. He's the deliverer from the bondage of sin. His role as a sacrifice is absolutely fulfilled. The Messiah would be resurrected. You say, what? That's in the Old Testament? Psalm 16, verses 8 through 10, recognized by Jews at the time to be a messianic psalm, to speak about the Messiah. Verse 9. My heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh dwells secure, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol. You won't let your Holy One see corruption. Sheol is death. I won't be abandoned to death. I won't be left in death. You won't let me see that corruption. You will restore me. You will resurrect the Messiah. And it says in another psalm, you won't let your Holy One see corruption. For David, after he served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep. He laid with his fathers. He saw corruption. His body decayed. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Jesus, the incorruptible one, his body did not decay. He met the resurrection prophecy as well. Messiah would be called God. That's an Old Testament prophecy. Not wrongly called God. He would be God. Messiah as God. He will be great. He'll be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. Of his kingdom there will be no end. Wonderful, counselor, mighty God. The divinity and the titles? Check. So what do we have here for the prophecies? Oh, he ushers in a new covenant. That there would be a new covenant is in Jeremiah. God says, I'll... I'll bring a new covenant, one that's written on your hearts and not just written on tablets of stone, like the covenant through Moses, which is what we have in Christianity. We're the mediator of a new covenant. So the effect on our relationship with God, the Messiah has done. So what does this leave us? It leaves us with the lineage. It leaves us with the birthplace, virgin birth, ministry, role and sacrifice, resurrection, Divinity and titles and the change in our relationship with God. All of those met in Jesus, the Messiah. So the Messiah, absolutely I agree. Last principle, resurrection of the dead. 
That's a Christian basis. I mean, that's fundamental to the Christian faith. That's the whole reason Jesus came. So I look at this and I say, am I a religious Jew? Well, I'm 13 for 13 on the Maimonides scale. But it doesn't fully end there. I'll tell you more, uh, I hope, if we do one more lesson. At any rate, here's your points for home. Paul said in Romans 2, 6 through 8, that God would render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he'll give eternal life. I'd like to think that's me. That's me by wish. That's not me by practice. Oh, it is sometimes. But not 100%. Not even 90 in fact, not even 69. What's a passing grade? 60? Yeah, I fail. I'm below 60 on it, okay? But for those who are self-seeking, ew, that's one of my problems. Those who do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, yeah, I've done that one a lot, there'll be wrath and fury. Okay, that's not good news. But it doesn't end there. Paul says, but now there's a righteousness of God that's been manifested apart from that law. So you can have the righteousness under that law that none of us will get. But we've got now one that's been manifested apart from the law, even though the law and the prophets bear witness to it. That's what they were saying the whole time. And this is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. You say, God, I trust you. With my sin. I trust the sacrifice of Jesus. I claim it for my own. And it's yours. That's it. And God starts working and changing. He doesn't leave you where you are. But that is that decision where you move and take on a righteousness you'll never get on your own. That's good news. Last point for home. Jesus said, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die." Yet shall he live. And this I'm going to share. I'm going to let it transform me. I'm going to let it transform the world. So why I'm not a Jew. I'm not sure I can say it that way. Because I think in some ways. I am. Can I pray over you? Father I ask a prayer of blessing. God that you would bless. Our hearts. And our minds move in your spirit to convict us in faith and trust of Jesus the Messiah. Transform who we are, Lord, through the righteousness of Christ, through whom we pray, amen. Amen.